one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 339, for the week of Sunday, September 26th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Fresh from the Wilmoth Farm over here in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. How you doing there, Sawyer? Doing okay, thank you. Welcome as well, Mark Raderman. Good to be here. Nice to have quiet weather, at least at this end. And welcome back, Gina Hurley, and her special guest. Oh, thank you, Sawyer. It's been a few weeks since I've been on the panel, and tonight we have no stranger to talking space with us, Mr. Frank Mooring from Aviation Week. Frank is a senior editor and has been a journalist for 35 years, specializing in aerospace for over 20 years. Frank joined Aviation Week in 1989 as a defense and space reporter and senior space technology editor. In 2007, Frank was named Deputy Managing Editor of Space, responsible for coordinating space coverage across all bureaus and publications. Welcome tonight, Frank. Well, thank you for having having me back. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, well, we have a lot of questions for you, especially after NASA's big announcement of the new space launch system. And... um, There's lots of news out there, and we're hoping that you can help us dissect some of that. I know Gene's got sort of a big, heavy question he'd like to lead off with. Excuse the pun, heavy, but I'll (laughs) Gene. Thank you, Gina. And again, Frank, thanks so much for uh, for joining us again. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, You are. It was uh, the big story last week. We didn't turn a page in our newspapers without going ahead and taking, taking a look at it. Um, and now we've got UR's light coming. ESA's ROSAT satellite is expected to come down later in, later in November. Um, how do you see the whole Earth orbit debris issue in general? The veteran Spacebeat reporter, you know, how do you see the issue? Do you see it as a pressing problem or you know, with a solution, or is it something we're just going to have to live with? Well, uh, certainly it's something we're going to have to live with uh, in the near term. And while the, certainly there's been a lot of a lot of coverage of of URs hitting hitting Earth, the real problem is up in orbit, where uh, uh, the big fear is that as more debris um, is generated there by natural causes, by collisions, uh, we've now had a collision uh, involving an active satellite, and iridium satellite was destroyed uh, by an, uh, a defunct. Russian satellite, and of course that creates more debris. There was also the Chinese uh, ASAT test, which was the biggest debris event ever, 
And the theory or the fear is that that will um, create kind of a cascade effect and that space would become unusable. I'm, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a danger, but there's a lot of people are, uh, the, the space faring nations of the world are already taking mitigating uh, steps to prevent that from happening. Things like, um, setting up their trajectory so that defunct satellites go either back into the, into the atmosphere or out away from earth. So, uh, the fact that there are people who are aware of the problem is, uh, uh, and, and are doing something about it is probably good news, but it is a danger. Ultimately there's, you know, there are a lot of, I was just looking at some of the papers that are going to be presented at the international astronautical Congress this year. And there's a whole section on, on debris removal, which is kind of interesting. But that's pretty far down the road, down the road, I think. Um, there was a report, I guess, released uh, a while back ago, indicating that we may have already reached that. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think it was the National Research Council that uh, that issued it. Um, I know we're starting to build. Well, well, as of 1995, we were kind of sort of building satellites with. The, um, you know, the, the ability to just sort of not survive as they come in, um, but we still have that the issue up there. Do you see the, the one possible solution is to put all this, all the the garbage into a sort of a parking orbit? Is that really? Do you think that might be feasible at some point, or 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 what? <laughs> yes, and and I think that some I, I can't give you details, but I think some spacecraft are designed to do that now. Uh, once they they reach the end of their useful life, they retain enough fuel to kick them out deeper into space into relatively safe orbits where there's they're less likely to run into something. The real the real danger area is is closer into Earth. You know, if you get something a few thousand miles out, there's there's less danger of a of a collision of a cascade. Uh, it's when you start getting into the the top of the atmosphere up to six or seven hundred miles. I think that's probably more of a dangerous, dangerous or danger zone. But um, I'm sort of at the edge of what I know about that right now. <laughs> okay. Um, just to to pull back a little bit, I know that the space launch system has been you know really really out there in, in the news. Um, I'm sort of the opinion that that we're kind of sort of looking at constellation light. Um, even given the, the NASA's global exploration roadmap and all that, you think I'm barking up the right tree here? Is that what we're really looking at, or is are we really looking at something that's that's a little bit far more removed from constellation? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. No, I, I I think that's a good way to put it. Actually, uh, constellation was a whole family of of vehicles that was that were designed that was designed to take humans back to the moon and set up an outpost there. And it included um, a crew launch vehicle called Ares One. It included a heavy lift launch vehicle called Ares Five, which is a a lot like the uh, the space launch system that was was just formally announced. Uh, there were also uh, there was also a moon lander. There was an Earth departure stage. There were precursor missions. One of them is actually orbiting the moon right now. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, which is returning. You know, incredibly detailed maps of the moon, which will be useful for explorers whenever we go back, because the surface of the moon doesn't change. And um, so now we're down to um, a heavy lift vehicle, something like the Ares Five, and the original um, 
crew capsule. It was called the Crew Exploration Vehicle. It was named Orion. And the United States has spent about $5 billion on it already. Uh, there is an Orion capsule out in Denver right now undergoing ground tests. And um, that is now called the Multipurpose Crew Vehicle. And uh, instead of riding on an Ares-1 crew launch vehicle, it would ride on top of some version of the space launch system. So out of a whole family of vehicles, you're down to basically two, a capsule and a heavy lift rocket. So it, and it does look a little bit like uh, like the Saturn V. So Frank, basically, they've eliminated the Ares One system, the the rocket capability that was only going to launch the crew exploration vehicle for Constellation. That's right. And at that point, the crew exploration vehicle was the Orion capsule stacked on one shuttle booster, if you can allow that term just for ease and simplicity. Yeah. Um. But that one shuttle booster was supposed to lift a crew exploration vehicle capsule, Orion, that was going to fit six astronauts. That was the original plan, yes. So now we're down to four astronauts stuffed into the multi-purpose crew vehicle. Yes, and, and I think what happened there, the, the original plan was to use the, the Ares-1 and a six-person version of Orion to get crewed to the space station after the space shuttle retired. Uh, but it was always designed and intended to go beyond the space station, beyond low Earth orbit, onto the moon. And actually, um, as, as the re-entry capsule, all the, you know, to bring back crews that, who had been to Mars. Um, so for that deep space mission because of the, the more rigorous requirements for life support and just room, uh, they, they had always planned to do four seats instead of six. So six was for low Earth, low Earth orbit and four was for uh, deep space. Of course, these were all paper rockets um, to a certain extent when those kind of discussions were being held. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they did eventually drop down to four seats, even before the Constellation program uh, was terminated at the beginning of the Obama administration. Yes, okay. There was a uh, House hearing uh, last week where uh, Neil Armstrong, Gene Cernan, uh, Mike Griffin, um, I, I, I believe uh, one of the uh, one of the folks from the Grail uh, mission attended. And uh, Armstrong started out his um, his testimony basically saying that uh, he felt uh, uh, sort of embarrassed where where the U.S. was. He he said he supported the the space launch system, which was you know, not really a there, but he he basically said that he was almost embarrassed what was going on. Um, that we don't have a have have a goal, or no goal has been really 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 articulated. And on the flip side of that, we had um, I believe uh, Norm Augustine gave an interview to uh, uh, to the Houston Chronicle, basically saying, "quote you know he, that he was a, a space enthusiast, both you know human and unmanned, and he'd really love to see a, a pretty good space program, but." Uh, he said, quote, but rather have a space program with ambitious and, you know, adequate money. He'd rather have a lesser program with um, most everyone will say that until push comes to shove. And then they'll go ahead and they'll say, well, we'll do our best. And he said, that's a formula for disaster. Who's right? <laughs> I'm covering that. And I, and I try to keep my personal uh, opinions out of it when I can. I can give you the background. 
I've, I've been covering um, space in Washington now for a long time, and um, this is a situation, this, it's almost like a train wreck that you could see coming, uh, although I have to admit that I certainly didn't see it coming quite to the extent that it has. Um, Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan are not the only um, Apollo astronauts who are upset about the, the, the turn of events. Uh, we We now have no at the moment, there is no way for NASA to send uh, astronauts into space. We we rely on the on the uh, Russian Soyuz uh, capsule, as we did after Columbia um, uh, crashed in uh, 2003. And um, it's not just that that upset is not just confined to uh, to Apollo astronauts either. There are a lot of a lot of space people in the space community who, who are not happy about this turn of events. Um, after Columbia, there was um, an effort to learn lessons from, from, from the accident. And one of the lessons that, that um, came out of it was, was the need to... Um, well, one of the lessons that the that the Columbia Accident Investigation Board said was that there needs to be a clearly defined goal for for space, and the Constellation program in part grew out of that. There were some other details. For example, they suggested that it was it was a bad mistake to combine cargo and crew in the same vehicle. That and that's why there was a crew launch vehicle and a heavy lift vehicle that was not going to take crew up. Uh, the crew was going to meet the heavy lift vehicle in orbit. Um, this constellation program was launched with a, by a speech by President George W. Bush at NASA headquarters um, after the Columbia accident, uh, had, after the space community had digested the, the Columbia accident, and and um, President Bush announced this back to the moon plan using these vehicles, which have a lot of what they call heritage in earlier vehicles. For example, the upper stage of the Ares-1 is a version of the upper stage of the Saturn V called that. The older engine was called the uh, the J-2. The new engine, which is in testing at Stennis Space Center right now, is called the J-2X. But it's a, you know, it's a human-rated engine upgraded for, for the 21st century. Um, the Bush administration never gave that program enough money and essentially starved. And there were the inevitable technical problems. Um, for example, the single shuttle booster, it was actually a, an extended version of the shuttle booster with five segments of solid fuel rather than four, produced something called thrust oscillation, which is basically bad vibration, which um, uh, required a lot of study and engineering to... Uh, mitigate the effect that it would have on the astronauts riding on top of the of the, of the rocket. There, there was a sort of a harmonic effect that that had the engineers worried for a while, and they and they had to do some some modifications to their design, which also added weight. It was it was a you know it was a typical rocket development program that didn't have enough money. And when the Obama administration came in, they terminated it. Um, that was a bad thing for the space industry because at the same time that they were terminating Constellation, the space shuttle program was coming to an end. So suddenly they're all over the country. There are all, a bunch of highly skilled space workers and space engineers who don't have jobs or are looking at layoffs. 
And, of course, those people all have members of Congress, so it became a very political issue. Um, they're all, they all have representatives and senators of Congress, and those, those guys and those, uh, those their elected representatives, you know, did what they could to preserve their constituent jobs. It just became very, very polarized. There's also been a certain amount of, uh, of partisan politics involved, I think. Which is something that that is fairly new in the in the space biz. It's usually been pretty bipartisan. So who's right? You know, um, the 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 space launch system. I think people are glad that there's at least something of the books again. Uh, NASA has a development plan. It's going to you know some of the people who were laid off after the shuttle and constellation are probably going to find jobs in it. The space launch system was mandated by Congress. It's not something that NASA wanted to do. And in fact, um, it was, uh, I'll have to just say, squeezed out of the administration, out of the White House, out of the Office of Management and Budget by Senator Hutchison of Texas and Senator Nelson of Florida, both of whom have serious constituent interests in preserving as many of those space jobs as they can. And... Um, the design had been picked. The, the the basic design of the space launch system was picked in January to meet a congressional deadline, and um, Charles Bolden, the administrator of NASA, after a lot more study of that initial what they call reference design, um, picked a variant of it. And the the real difference in it was was not in the basic rocket, but in the the boosters, and 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 he called for a competition to make more powerful boosters later on and evolve the the heavy lifter to the 130 metric ton lift capability that the um, Congress had, had mandated. And uh, then it just sort of sat there for about nine months until Senator Hutchinson and uh, Senator Nelson went down to the Office of Management and Budget. And as far as I can tell, they twisted some arms, including the... Uh, the White House Budget Director Jacob Liu, and he said, "Okay, we'll we'll go with the with this design." But the design, really, um, everyone's been expecting the design. What they needed was confirmation that the administration was going to build it, right. and it got pretty ugly. There was a, there's a Senate investigation that's still ongoing about what the reason for the delay was. Uh, Mike Griffin, at that hearing that you just referenced, uh, said that it was. Um, if 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 you didn't want something to if you didn't want to build something you would delay it long right. enough and until there was an election and a lot of people thought that's what he, that was what was happening so basically we have a new rocket system that's been chosen by congress and not engineers that's it's been ordered by congress i think it's a mistake to, to call it the Senate launch system, as some do for the acronym SLS. It's, it's been engineered back into the Stone Age. I mean, this stuff is is well engineered. Every, you know, they've studied this and studied this and studied this and cost analyzed it and everything else. And but the fact that there is a rocket and that it has this capability uh, certainly was ordered by the, by the Senate and the, the Congress as a whole. And, and I might add. Uh, in a NASA reauthorization bill that President Obama signed in, in December of 2010. Okay, so this is, I mean, I, I was torn when Constellation was scrapped. I mean, I can see both sides, but, and I agree, what you touched upon, the timing was horrific to do it at that point. 
and, you know, cause a gap and send a lot of well-trained, highly skilled space techs and other workers that are associated with NASA and its contractors packing and home until there's a new game in town. So if we have that now, President Obama's reasons for scrapping it at the time was, of course, the cost overruns, the delay in schedule, as you said, NASA had been starved um, by the budget it was given by the Bush administration to develop Constellation. But Obama stood there and said, we're scrapping this because we can do better. And we're still going back to a lot of the same propulsion systems that are tried and true, and that's great for safety. And we know it works for efficiency. But is this any better? I mean, we scrapped it, it because we were supposed to come up with better propulsion. Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, it is the 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 the, uh, the first stage of the of this SLS has five space shuttle main engines. Initially, there'll be space shuttle main engines that have actually flown on the space shuttle surplus. Uh, there eventually will be a, a throwaway version of those reusable engines. The upper stage will be powered by this J2FX I mentioned, which is a goes back to the Saturn V back. It was actually in you know developed in the 1960s. Um, the initially the the boosters that we'll use they'll use to get it off the pad are the extended ver, extended version of the um, of the uh, space shuttle boosters the solid fuel boosters um, and even if they develop something else which some there's there's one possibility is a is a kerosene fueled uh, booster engine that's not really new technology either the Obama policy. Um, had the alternative to this heritage hardware that was in Constellation, there were there were a couple of things. They dropped the the back to the moon idea in favor of what I've always referred to as an open-ended technology development program, well-funded, like at the billion-dollar level, to to advance the uh, the um, level of technical re- or technology readiness of some pretty far out technologies like plasma propulsion, things that can get you to Mars in a matter of months and a few months instead of, you know, a year and a half or nine months or um, closed loop life support. Just a lot of the kinds of nuts and bolts, bits and pieces that would be needed to really have an open-ended exploration program uh, out into space. He got a lot of, a lot of, pushback at the beginning because there was no goal. So he said, well, we should go to an asteroid. That's a little bit easier. Uh, we don't have to land there. We can just kind of ease up next to it. And so we don't need an expensive lander. Um, the other part of that policy was to turn hum- U.S. human access to low Earth orbit over to the private sector. And even under under President uh, George W. Bush, there was a like a half a billion dollar program to develop to help to partner with private industry to develop um, privately owned vehicles that would charge NASA money to deliver cargo to the space station. Uh, It was called the Commercial Orbital Transportation System, COTS. And now that is, there is also a crew element to that. And there are, um, I believe, four companies now that are actually working under the same sort of arrangement, sort of seed money arrangement, to develop um, crew, you know, commercial vehicles, space taxis is a way to think of them, 
where NASA would pay to to pay a company. Um, Boeing is one. Space Technologies, Space Exploration Technologies Inc. or SpaceX is another. Blue Blue Origin, uh, uh, which belongs to Amazon.com founder Jeff Bezos, is another one. And there's a space plane um, being built by a company called Sierra Nevada. Um, these are these would be private vehicles that would fly to fly to space uh, with crews inside, and you know re- keep give the United States another way to get to the space station. That was the better way that Obama was talking about. And of course, what's happened now is that we have both. We have, as as you said, Constellation Light, and the the crew development and crew cargo efforts are still ongoing. So that's that's sort of where we are right now. Is is uh, a little bit of both. All right. So one question I was wondering is going back to the idea of you know Im- improving technologies and the space debris issue. If we still had the shuttle, could it have been possible to retrieve URs or any other satellites that could possibly impact people on Earth? And the other question is. With the International Space Station building, would NASA actually do it? Okay, on the first part of the question, there there have been satellites um, recovered by the space shuttle and brought back to Earth. They weren't really um, debris or, or re-entry threats. They were valuable satellites that didn't reach their proper orbit orbits and were returned for uh, repairs. They all as shuttle the shuttle was an incredible incredible vehicle it, it was so flexible um there were also some cases where astronauts actually captured a satellite in orbit um added a motor to it that was used then to put it in its proper orbit so they they salvaged or rescued you know a satellite that otherwise would have been lost and this is a big a big money thing because satellites cost you know they can cost a quarter of a billion dollars or more. Uh, depending on the the type of satellite, so um, the shuttle. I, I don't I don't know about the yours um, orbit. I just I just don't know what it was at the end. Uh, I sus- it seems like it was fairly uh, high inclination. So the the shuttle was a you know the didn't go above fifty one point six degrees. Uh, Latitude, so the the orbits may not have been compatible, and I don't know about the altitudes either. So, but it, it the shuttle certainly was able to rescue some satellites and might have. I, I don't know about yours, and I'm sorry. I, what I, what was the other part of your question? The other part was with NASA focused on building the International Space Station, would they take a mission out to actually go and retrieve it if they could? Uh again, that's that's. You know, I, maybe they would. It just depends on the danger. I think. I think certainly, if they if they knew that um, if they could determine with some certainty, which is probably unlikely, that a big satellite like URs was going to come down in the middle of Chicago, maybe they would try to do something. But there are also there might be other ways to uh, to to deal with the problem. Um, something robotic, and again, it's it's very speculative, but. Uh, the space station, you know, they didn't. The space station was certainly their 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 primary objective at the end of the shuttle program, and uh, in fact, the Columbia mission, as it happened, was 
really, I think, going to be the last purely scientific mission. It did not actually go to the space station and um, stayed up two weeks and did a lot of uh, scientific experiments in the payload bay. There was a pressurized module back there. And uh, so they didn't just do um, space station work. They also did a Hubble servicing mission uh, in that last stretch. But most of it was for the space station, which is an incredible engineering feat that would not have been possible without the space shuttle. Frank, actually, I had never heard that um, before, that Columbia's, well, the STS-107, the scientific mission that turned out to be, unfortunately, her last flight was supposed to be the last sort of non-station mission on the manifest. And with Columbia sort of having that reputation for extra weight and inability to move large cargo to the space station, do you think Columbia would have been taken out of the rotation a little bit, or could it have handled some of the flights to the space station? I guess if it was just human cargo and basic supply runs, potentially, right? Or you you hit the nail on the head. It, it because it was the first the first space shuttle to to fly into space. It had a lot of extra weight that subsequent uh, orbiters didn't have, uh, and so. That was why it was chosen for the scientific mission on STS-107. But certainly, I, as far as I know, it could it could reach the the space station with with um, uh, a smaller cargo load. And I just I have to say I don't know what the plan was for the for the orbiter after 107 had it not been destroyed. Um, maybe it would have been put in the rotation for some of the the lighter uh, elements. Because the, 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 everything on the space station was designed to go up in the shuttle, and some of it was quite heavy. Uh, can we really expect strong industry response for commercially provided crew launch to low Earth orbit when the number of flights seems to me it's likely to be less than what the space shuttle provided? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I've just spent the past month trying to answer it. And... Um, there has there is an idea behind the the uh, Obama administration policy uh, of what we're calling the new space economy that you you build if you can get the the cost of access to space down far enough uh, people will will find reasons they will find applications in space uh, and uh, an economy can actually develop up there in addition to the ones that are already there, which are communication satellites and, uh, to some extent, Earth ob- commercial Earth observation satellites. Uh, we aren't there yet. In fact, the closest thing to it is the suborbital launch vehicles, these reusable space planes like Virgin Galactic's um, Spaceship Two, uh, which is built by Scale Composites out in Mojave, California. It's, it's the the commercial version of the of the vehicle that won the Ansari X Prize. Uh, there's another company in Mojave called XCore, which is building a, a two-seat space plane. And there is a market for people. Uh, there is a market for both of these vehicles, and they think that their business cases close. Uh, orbital is going to be harder because there is, as you point out, only one destination. That's the space station. And crews stay up there about six months, 
so you rotate, you know, once or twice a year, and there are other vehicles to do it with. Um, right now, the Soyuz vehicle, which is three seats, and if they manage to get two companies going, you know, it's a real competition, which is what they want for um, crew rotations to the space station. There are other potential um, destinations in space. Uh, there's a company out of Las Vegas called Bigelow Aerospace, which is already has a couple of inflatable habitat prototypes in orbit that are un unmanned. They don't have life support, as far as I know. Uh, but they also have the company has plans to, to actually launch commercial space stations, and that would be another destination for for these uh, vehicles. The Boeing vehicle is is already in a Boeing is already in a in a partnership with with Bigelow. Uh, if they can get their vehicle flying, maybe Bigelow will launch something for them to fly too, in addition to the space station. So it's at this point, commercial space is suborbital, um, you know, up and down. Five minutes of weightlessness, four to five minutes of weightlessness. It's interesting. It's 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 scientists are starting to find their way to it. There's a little a little company up in in the suburbs of Philadelphia called the NASTAR Training Center, and um, it's a they've they've done a lot of military simulators and that sort of thing. Now they they have a simulator that simulates the uh, the spaceship two flight, and they've had about 240 people pay pretty good money to go through there and take a short course in what it's like to fly into space, which if you're going to actually do it, um, you really want to do, you, you don't want any surprises. Uh, you want to know what, how your body is going to react. And a lot, a lot of those people have been scientists who want to take an experiment up and, and see how it does in, in microgravity or see if they can look out the window at something, you know, without the atmosphere in the way, even for just a short period of time or just test a material in, in microgravity. It's, it's very interesting. It's, it's sort of a niche between sounding rockets, which don't go very often, and the space station, which is really hard to get to. Frank, it's interesting. When you said suborbital and some of the names of the companies there, um, not amongst people that are in the industry, but just among us civilians, sometimes you hear discussions that seem to focus a lot on I'm going to call it brand loyalty where huh. where different people seem to root for different companies or different concepts uh, any suggestions on how to stay neutral and not get uh, tied into the Ford versus Chevy camp well I think at this point it's 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 not so much Ford versus Chevy it's almost like uh, back in I guess the the 20s when there were a whole lot of cars that, that don't exist anymore like the Maxwells and the Packards and and you know there's a lot of a lot of people out there trying a lot of things and you know the 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 the, the Fords and Chevys are still there like I said Boeing is is building a uh, uh, crew vehicle for you know take crews to space station and maybe to this Bigelow uh, station but there you know there's SpaceX which is um, probably going to be the first company to deliver cargo to the space station commercially. Uh, another one in, in the running is Orbital Sciences Corporation. Um, so there are, you know, there are a lot of different vehicles out there. Um, none of them are really, you know, the Starship Enterprise. I mean, there's, it's all rockets, and, and uh, the, the SpaceX vehicle is a lot like the Russian vehicles, the Russian Soyuz vehicles, and that it has 
a lot of kerosene fueled engines and the whole the whole vehicle is fueled by kerosene and liquid oxygen for the oxidizer um, that saves money because you don't have to handle a whole lot of different kinds of fuel and that was deliberate that's the commercial approach and that's what the uh, that's what the 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 backers of the commercial space industry believe will make it attractive but you know at this point it's there was that movie field of dreams you know if you build if they, if you build it they will come that's sort of where where it is today but there are a lot of people working a lot of applications uh we were talking about space debris earlier there's a company out in Colorado that's working on what they call a mechanical tractor boom it's a a long boom with a kind of electrostatic grapple fixture on the end of it that can capture might be useful to to pull debris out of the, out of the air. I mean, it's very early technology readiness, but it's it's a, a space app. Uh, one of the guys, one of the advocates of this of this type of stuff, said, you know, space today is a lot like uh, this is a guy named Brett Alexander, who's been working it for probably 20, 30 years uh, as a policy wonk here in Washington. He said it's kind of like where um, the the smart telephones were a few years back. You know the the apples and and other companies of the world built the smart telephones, and then people started inventing apps for them right and left. And um, it's he says you can look at these launch vehicles as the same sort of thing. It's a platform for apps, but the main thing is to get the cost of of getting the space down low enough to make the apps profitable. I don't so, know. It's, it's an interesting idea. I'm I'm, I'm I'm not going to put any money on it myself, but uh, we're actually forbidden to do that in my company since we cover it. So basically, in the long run, do you see these short trips into orbit and these apps that you're talking about, do you see this becoming a viable industry? You know, I think I think eventually it will, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's my hunch. I think there are a lot of things that can go wrong. I, I ask people what can go wrong. One thing that can go wrong is if they get too cocky, I guess is, that's my word, um, and they have some bad accidents early on. I think accidents are probably inevitable, and I think most people do think that. But th- this this industry, really, this suborbital industry also caters to extremely wealthy people who can afford to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars for what's essentially a joyride. And those kind of people are not going to want to um, fly on something that's crashed and, and killed people. And and even if they do, you know, their families may not want them to. Their insurance companies may not want them to. It gets it gets kind of complicated pretty quickly, and so they have to be careful to make you know to demonstrate that this is not completely reckless. Uh, I mean, people do climb Mount Everest every year, and that's extremely dangerous. And this is probably going to be at that level of danger. But you don't climb Mount Everest not thinking you're going to come back down. Obviously, with all these other crews coming on and all these other vehicles flying, not all of them are going to be launching from the Kennedy Space Center. For example, there was a story that was recently put out of the possibility of NASA's Wallops flight facility out in Virginia uh, trying to figure out if they could possibly launch manned missions from their facilities. And if so, would that affect the KSC workforce down there? Or, you know, how would it affect the workforce that 
you know, operates down at the Kennedy Space Center where all American manned launches currently occur? Well, certainly the, the KSC workforce would like to see as many launches as possible. And they certainly have a lot more launch pads, a lot more infrastructure for, for launching humans and uh, cargo and satellites and a lot of other stuff. And Wallops is a fairly small place. I, I, I was out there uh, this spring, and you know, there's there's one pad that's I think it's pretty close to completed now that's going to launch the Orbital Sciences Taurus II with cargo. And Orbital was at one point planning to use that to launch crew, uh, but they didn't win uh, NASA support in this program we talked about earlier to of seed money for for a, a public-private development. So they've they're going to stick with with cargo from there right now. But there's no reason why you couldn't launch a human from Wallops um, or a lot of other places. There's a a really nice um, spaceport going up out in New Mexico called Spaceport America, where the the uh, uh, Virgin aircraft are going to fly from, spacecraft are going to fly from, and it looks like a you know it's it's built. It looks like an airport, and it's got a ten thousand foot runway. It's it's uh, where the the people are going to go to fly to space. So and there's you know around the world there are a lot of places like that. There are peace people in the, you know, some of the oil people in the uh, Persian Gulf are, are, are talking about flying from there. The, there's a, a move afoot in northern Europe to fly from uh, the Swedish Arctic up into the uh, the Aurora, the northern lights. So, um, you know, there's a lot of places you can fly from besides the Cape. The Cape is, has the advantage of, of being, you know, on the, on the ocean, so, you know, you don't have to worry about stuff falling on cities. And in the United States, it's pretty close to the equator. And, of course, you want to get as close to the equator as you can if you're trying to launch something heavy, which is why the European spaceport down in on the north coast of South America is uh, is where it is. It's I think it's at four degrees north or south. I think it's north, uh, latter, north longitude, latitude. So... Uh, it's very close to the equator, and you can you get more launch efficiency there. Uh, but yes, to answer your original question, I think all of these places would take business away from the Cape. Frank, I've got another question for you. This one kind of takes us uh, into the future. Sometimes with what I hear people talk about, the, the romance of exploration has people talking way beyond where research needs to focus now. And yet this weekend coming up, I'm going to plan on being down in Orlando, Florida at the 100-year Starship Study Symposium. And for listeners that may not have heard much about that, it's uh, an effort that over the next century will work towards achieving interstellar travel. DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, is the primary funding agency for this, and they have the support of NASA Ames. So with that uh, balance of science fiction and science fact, uh, any thoughts about what's coming up this weekend that I mentioned? I think it sounds really cool. Uh, that kind of, you know, when, when you're dealing with federal budgets and all this Washington kind of stuff, that's, um, you know, you, ha you can't think that far ahead. And it's, and it's really, that's, I think it's really neat that, that DARPA, which is actually, 
um, set up to do that kind of out there thinking is, is doing something in the space field. And um, certainly, I mean, I've, I've heard people suggest that, you know, a trip to Mars should be one way. And if you're, if you're going to go out of the solar system, I think that's pretty much inevitable just because of the distances involved. So it's nice that people are thinking about uh, the problems that are, that would be involved. Of course, People have been thinking about that for a long time. If you go to any bookstore, there's a big section called science fiction. And it's neat that some of this is, is maybe at least starting to become uh, science fact. Okay, and with that, Frank, we just can't thank you enough for joining us this evening. Uh, it's been a really enjoyable conversation with you as always. And please come back and talk to us again when there's more to do in D.C. about space. Well, I'd love to do it, and thank you so much for, for, for talking to me tonight. I've really enjoyed it. Okay, and we'll just want to point out that everybody should check out aviationweek.com. So if you can please put that in the show notes, you can see more of what Frank and the rest of Aviation Week space, defense, and um, aviation coverage that they have to offer on their website. And that will, in fact, be in the show notes. All right, and once again, thank you to Frank Mooring for joining us. Also, thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. It's great to have the band back together, especially for uh, for Mr. Frank Mooring. Uh, a huge thank you for to him for uh, for joining us this evening. Thanks. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Can't help but repeat myself. It's great to be here. I love learning. And thank you once again for joining us. We missed you, Gina Hurley. Oh, it's good to be back. Thanks. And with that, we thank you for joining us. I apologize for my slight lack of voice here, but regardless, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, wherever you are.